Arlington police say protests Monday remain generally peaceful, but say there were, quote, several agitators. Send me another unit, please. Send me another unit. Look what you did to my store. This is a movement, I'm telling you. They're not going to stop. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right. Welcome back to Into the Fray. Quite a week we had, eh? More revelations. Apparently, China has the goods on the Biden family and are not afraid to use them. Biden's website is openly threatening multiple sections of the Bill of Rights. Our enemies are salivating at the internal strife we currently face. And just to keep things interesting, we have mass riots in the streets of our major cities, threatening to spill out everywhere regardless how the election turns out. There's no delicate way to say this. We're facing the convergence of several existential threats. If you haven't been following real news, that may seem like an extreme statement. If you have been following, then you might be really stressed out about the next few months. And depending what happens the next few months, probably the next few years, too. I know that's heavy, so I want to follow it up with this. It's not the end of the world. We can handle this. We just have to make sure we actually do handle it. Political grift has reached critical mass and is now positioned to overthrow the Constitution, bent on replacing it with socialism. Violent riots are still gripping our streets, also calling for the overthrow of the Constitution and replacing it with socialism. Antifa are communists. The heads of Black Lives Matter are self-proclaimed trained Marxists. They actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. If it gets passed, the Green New Deal gives the federal government direct and blanket control of nearly every private industry. The so-called Affordable Care Act? Obamacare gave the federal government unprecedented power over the healthcare industry. That's what socialism is. It's central control of industry. The central power doesn't own any of the industries on paper, like in communism. And they don't overtly control the day-to-day operations, like in communism. But make no mistake, when they say jump, you ask how high. You can keep your business, so long as you use your business to do what we say. Socialism is the ultimate grift. It takes all the power and money of a nation's citizens and puts it in the hands of a select handful of con artists who live the dream while the nation crumbles around them. In 2016, Dinesh D'Souza released a documentary called Hillary's America. More accurately, it's a documentary of the history of the Democrat Party detailing their long history of abuses against the American people. It laid out how the Democrat Party institutionalized organized crime and how they carry out their cons. It's a simple four-step pattern. Organize the con, bait the marks, then comes the turn. And finally, if you get caught, deny, deny, deny. Never give up the con. D'Souza gave the example of one street-level con. A gang gets together and decides they are going to set up an organization that purports to help the community. They then go around the community to vulnerable individuals and offer them a substantial sum of money to set up a life insurance policy, with the proviso that if anything unfortunate happens, the money will go to the charity. The unknown catch is that the charity just funnels money to the con gang. After a while, something unfortunate befalls the client, and the gang collects. When the investigators finally show up, deny, deny, deny. Never give up the con. In current politics, leveraging political power for money is the con. How did the Bidens end up in the pickle they're in? 
their alleged con has been exposed. How did this play out? The organization and bait stages look innocuous enough from the outside. He organized a campaign to get elected to a high office, and then campaigned to convince voters to put him there. Once he was elected, then came the turn, and allegedly, U.S. foreign policy was leveraged for financial gain. Now you might be saying to yourself, but that's how all politicians get in. They set up a campaign and they get elected. This is true, but good candidates get in to make a difference, not a buck. It may be difficult to tell the good from the bad on the campaign trail, but it's a lot easier once they're in office. There's a reason elections come around so often. Old Joe conned his way into high office and then allegedly used his position to leverage millions from Russia, Ukraine, and China. And that's just what we found out about. Despite the fact that his business partner has turned state's witness and turned over everything to the FBI, what did we see out of old Joe at the debate? Deny, deny, deny. Never give up the alleged con. The idea that, generally speaking, a politician will actually follow through on their campaign promises is laughable now. We've reached a point where we expect to get conned in the campaigning process. We're used to it. It's been normalized. The politician says whatever will get them elected, and then, once in office, they'll do whatever they can to stay there. They will sell out everything and everyone. They will lie and cheat. They will abandon their principles. They will abandon reason. They will allow their reputation to flush down the toilet. Why? Because the end goal is to leverage their political position for money. Ever notice how many politicians get into office with little or no accumulated wealth, and then, after a couple of decades or so, are living large in a mansion, with a beach house for when they get bored of the mansion? I'm not suggesting that every single politician is a con artist. Just most of them. And the Democrat Party has turned the con game into a global machine. They get power, then they leverage that power for money. There's a reason establishment politicians, Democrat and Republican, are so universally hated. Sometimes I think people really do know what's going on, even if they can't put their finger on it. I can't remember where I heard it, but there's an old joke about a dirty politician who dies, and before he reaches the pearly gates, he's informed that he will receive a tour of both heaven and hell, and then he'll have to choose where he'll live for eternity. He sees heaven, and it's full of people singing praises, living on fluffy clouds, and everyone is busily working. Then he goes to hell, and sees all his old buddies playing golf and having a great time. He chooses hell, and the next day he's escorted to his new, eternal home. But it's different. Now it's flames and brimstone. The putrid air chokes him, and his friends aren't playing golf and having a grand old time. They're being tormented. The politician turns to his escort to protest and is met with a laughing derision. This should be familiar to you. Yesterday we were campaigning. Today you voted. You're probably not laughing. It's not meant to be funny. The turn comes after the election. Obamacare is case in point. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor under the reform proposals that we put forward. If you like your private health insurance plan, you can keep it. If you like the plan you have, you can keep it. If you like the doctor you have, you can keep your doctor too. We will keep this promise to the American people. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you will be able to keep your health care plan, period. Now, if you have or had one of these plans before the Affordable Care Act came into law, and you really liked that plan, what we said was you could keep it if it hasn't changed since the law has passed. 
You can keep your insurance. You can keep your doctor. So long as you operate the way we tell you to. In the end, a lot of people didn't keep their insurance or their doctor. But the industry was regulated through and a lot of money was made. This isn't something you can avoid by just voting Republican either. There are plenty of old crony establishment Republicans and, as they found out in Cheshire County, New Hampshire, when you vote blindly, you can end up with a transsexual Satanist with pink and purple hair whose slogan is F the police. For sheriff. Pretty sure that qualifies as irony. The problem is pervasive. It's not just sleepy, creepy, sniffy Joe. Dianne Feinstein, the illustrious California senator, who should be forever known for telling a crowd of doting journalists how dangerous assault weapons are while holding a firearm with her finger on the trigger. Yeah, her husband's firm was awarded a billion-dollar contract with the state of California to build a small section of high-speed railway. She swears up and down she had nothing to do with it. Deny, deny, deny. It doesn't end there. From Breitbart, Final disclosure reports from 2001 to 2005 indicate that MILCON, Military Construction Veterans Affairs and Related Agencies Subcommittee, say that five times fast, back to the article, under Feinstein's leadership cleared appropriations that were eventually funneled as $1.551 billion worth of military construction contracts to URS Corporation, a San Francisco-based engineering services firm, and Perini, now Tudor Perini, both partially owned by her husband's investment firm and their investors, at the time. Compare that with Rand Paul, who runs an efficient office and returns the unspent taxpayer money at the end of each term. Nancy Pelosi seems to have benefited herself as well. From the Washington Free Beacon, the top Democrat in the House of Representatives steered more than a billion dollars in subsidies to a light rail project that benefited a company run by a high-dollar Democrat donor in which her husband is a major investor. The company's CEO, Mark Binoff, is a high-dollar Democratic donor. Pelosi and her leadership pack are among the recipients of his generous campaign contributions. Pelosi's husband is also a major Salesforce investor. One of our favorites, Ilhan Omar, shortened the pipeline straight from herself to her, what are we on now, third husband? From the New York Post. Representative Ilhan Omar has continued quietly funneling hundreds of thousands of dollars to her new husband's consulting firm, including a $189,000 windfall in March. Just weeks after they announced they had tied the knot, campaign data shows. The payments between the Minneapolis Democratic Congresswoman and Tim Minot prompted at least one ethics complaint in 2019, after the Post first revealed allegations, made by Minot's then-wife in her divorce filing, that Omar was having an affair with a member of her political consulting team, who was at the time married to another woman. Omar was married to her second husband at the time. But that doesn't appear to have stopped the now-married couple with Minette's E Street Group collecting $292,814.99 from his wife's campaign this year for digital advertising, fundraising consulting, and research services, according to the Federal Elections Commission filings. In total, Minot has received a whopping $878,930.65 from Omar's campaign since he began working for her in 2018, raising eyebrows among watchdogs and political law experts who say the practice is rife with cronyism. The majority of those payments were made after the Somali-born lawmaker's victory in the solid Democratic district in the November 2018 midterm elections. What's being suggested here, and it's no leap to get there, is that Ilhan Omar is paying herself with donation money from her campaign. Yeah, that's a good racket if you can get it. Compare her with Christy Nome, governor of South Dakota, who got into politics because she saw all of this madness and restrained her own power during COVID 
adhering strictly to the enumerated powers of her office as dictated by her state constitution. For the record, look into Christy Noem. We could do well with someone like her following President Trump in 2024. So how do these public servants live the lavish lifestyles they do? Leverage. It's a big con, and we're the suckers. But it's been small potatoes up to this point. The long con is socialism, and they thought they had it in the bag in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. The socialism con is introduced the same way. The plan is to convince a nation's people to adopt a system of government that will allow the gang to take their money at will. The bait is free stuff and dead boogeymen. Want free healthcare? How about a public option? Want free education? We've got you covered. Did you take on heavy student debt you can't handle? Let's wipe that clean. Terrified the world is going to implode in, what did AOC say, 12 years? We'll mandate green. Not happy with your housing situation? We'll take care of it. Think your boss should pay you more? Who doesn't? Leave it with us. We can solve all your problems. All you have to do is sign here. So you sign. Then comes the turn. You find out that you signed over your sovereignty, and they leverage that advantage against you. In return for astronomically high taxes, aka giving them your money, and giving up the power to stop them, you get broken healthcare, broken education, a market that cannot produce sufficiently, a dramatic decline in the average standard of living, inadequate food production, and transparent weakness on the global stage. This weakness necessitates a police state to control unrest within, and a massive military buildup to restrain foreign enemies who are salivating at your new position of weakness. Now the police state is surveilling everyone, all the time. And if you don't toe the line, you disappear to a work camp, creating a slave class to compensate for the loss of free market labor. Your children are being conscripted, and the values you sought so diligently to teach them are being drilled out of them by a military whose only objective is to protect the central power that supports and panders to them. Think this sounds crazy? It's the story of Russia, Germany, North Korea, China, Cuba, and Venezuela. Just in the last hundred years. This is life under socialism. And don't let them fool you with the Scandinavian argument. Those countries have, over and over, had to publicly address and debunk that argument, telling the world that they are not socialist nations. They are founded on all the same free market principles. It doesn't stop with Russia and China and Cuba and Venezuela. If we go back further, it gets worse. Eventually, the military becomes powerful enough to threaten the position of the political class. Internal conflict, assassinations, and military coups, coupled with a popular hatred of the political class, leads to overthrow and the installment of military rule, and finally a military dictatorship. A lot of people die in this process, and pretty much everyone is miserable. We've come a long way, haven't we? Starting from a free market, a little harmless greed, and a lot of willful blindness. We ended up subjected to a single, all-powerful political party, and eventually to a dictator. I didn't pave the road. I just followed it to its logical and well-established conclusion. Politics doesn't change because human nature doesn't change. The names change, the technology changes, but the patterns remain because they're not based on who or how, but why. Now for the good news. We haven't yet signed over the last of our sovereignty. Before we give it up, we should probably know what we're losing, or I suppose on a more positive note, what we're trying to save. For thousands of years of kings, feudal lords, emperors, and oligarchs, you gained wealth and improved your quality of life by conquering your neighbors and then taking their resources and labor. Sound like something you want to do? Probably not. We've advanced so far beyond this that the very thought of inflicting that kind of abuse is abhorrent to us. For most of history, though, if you wanted more food, you conquered your neighbors and made them produce food for you. If you wanted more wood, 
You conquered a neighbor with vast forests, and then you made them cut wood and ship it to you. This meant that a few, very powerful individuals lived reasonably well, and everyone else lived in abject, miserable poverty. Wealth inequality is growing in our society, not because of the free market, but because well-connected people in business are colluding with powerful people in government to suppress competition and con the market. Before this modern marvel, the free market, even the most wealthy had a lower standard of living than the poverty line of the United States does today. Caesar didn't have air conditioning. Solomon, with all his wealth and treasure, could never have imagined a smartphone. Genghis Khan conquered like half the world. Imagine what he would have given for a pickup truck with mud tires. For thousands of years of recorded history, people rode horses and pooped in a hole in the ground. No kidding, it was 1775 when Alexander Cummings was awarded a patent for a flushing toilet with an S-bend pipe that created a seal between the bowl and the receptacle. Thousands of years of recorded history, and in the last 250, we've gone from pooping in a hole in the ground and riding horses everywhere to millions of flights across the globe, space travel, artificial hearts, and a little screen you carry in your pocket that gives you instant access to nearly the entirety of human knowledge. That's what the free market has done. Think this standard of living is permanent? The people who lived near the Roman aqueducts during the medieval age believed they were built by long-extinct giants because no people could have built something so grand. Our forebears set us up very well. We have inherited the results of the collected wisdom of thousands of years of progress. Returning to past failures is not going to do us any favors. What happened when Obama and Biden tried to force a green company into success? It was called Solyndra, and it was an epic failure. What happened when an entrepreneur decided to do the same thing, taking the risk on himself? That was Elon Musk, and he has made electric vehicles not only practically viable, a huge hurdle in itself, but beautiful as well. Musk and his employees have brought us new solar innovations including compact, efficient home battery storage as well as efficient, reusable rockets for greener, cheaper space travel. The free market is able to sustain innovation where central authority fails to maintain even a tenuous grasp of control. While the United States was becoming an industrial world power, the Soviet Union and China were losing millions to starvation. We're not just preserving a standard of living, we're preserving free will for ourselves and our children. Socialism is central control, and look around. Do people in Venezuela or North Korea or China look like they're living life on their terms? High-rise factories in China have nets to prevent people from permanently quitting their job. If you're miserable at your job, do you even contemplate taking your own life? I'm going to guess no. Odds are, if your job is that bad, you're getting online in the evening and looking for a new one. There's a reason people flock to the U.S. There's a reason people in semi-free countries are begging us not to go over the cliff telling us that if we go, the light of freedom that keeps the rest of the world from plunging into total darkness goes with us. 2020 has been a roller coaster, and the suddenness of the change can make it feel like all of this is just happening now. But it's been happening, a little at a time, for several generations now. There's no one alive today who remembers what life was like before we started down the incremental socialism road. And that's the problem with the slippery slope. It's pretty flat near the top. You walk out a few steps on the slope and it's not a big deal. You still have sure footing. Your shoes are gripping fine. So you take a few more steps, carefully, gingerly testing your grip. Your shoes are holding. You could go a bit more. This keeps up. You advance a little at a time. Your grip is holding. Eventually, you start to question the people who are warning you against walking out there. You've come this far with no trouble. Then someone sneezes. 
You look back to see who it was, and now the tenuous grip of your shoes gives, and you fall down, 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 bumping, twisting, and wrenching all the way to a broken and mangled death at the bottom. The slippery slope is dangerous because once you get out there far enough, slipping and falling is inevitable. Go far enough out, and the slope becomes vertical. Somehow the socialists think they can stand on a vertical slope where so many others have failed. They just didn't do it right, they tell us. 100 million dead in the 20th century alone would say, no kidding. Somewhere near the beginning of 2020, someone sneezed, and America started to lose her footing. This next clip is from a speech given by Ezra Benson, Secretary of Agriculture under President Eisenhower. I have talked face-to-face with the godless communist leaders. It may surprise you to learn that I was host to Mr. Khrushchev for a half day when he visited the United States. Not that I'm proud of it. I opposed his coming then, and I still feel it was a mistake to welcome this atheistic murderer as a state visitor. But according to President Eisenhower, Khrushchev had expressed a desire to learn something of American agriculture. And after seeing Russian agriculture, I can understand why. (laughs) As we talked face to face, he indicated that my grandchildren would live under communism. After assuring him that I expected to do all in my power to assure that his and all other grandchildren will live under freedom, he arrogantly declared in substance, you Americans are so gullible. No, you won't accept communism outright, but we'll keep feeding you small doses of socialism until you'll finally wake up and find you already have communism. Sound familiar? That was 1959. Compare our social programs from 1959 against today. Compare the popular opinion of socialism today against your childhood. We've been fed spoonfuls of socialism, a bit at a time, for decades, and now we have mobs in the street demanding it. Notice that Khrushchev didn't argue the merits of freedom versus communism, only the power. What is it that Marxists say now? Rest in power? That's what socialism is really about. Khrushchev didn't argue that people would be happier, better off, or more fulfilled. He argued only that they would openly embrace their subjugation. The mobs dancing, screaming, and rioting in the streets are demanding subjugation under Marxism. We should stand with confidence in our position. We must stand with confidence in our position. The intro to this show, very purposefully, includes a quote from President Ronald Reagan's appropriately named speech, A Time for Choosing. In his day, socialism threatened our nation from without. Today, it threatens from within. I want to play an extended cut of that clip. And while you listen, I want you to frame what he says in terms of the conversation you just heard between Secretary Taft and Nikita Khrushchev, and in terms of the politicians, media personalities, and street mobs now demanding the chains of Marxism. Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. All who oppose them are indicted as warmongers. They say we offer simple answers to complex problems. Well, perhaps there is a simple answer. Not an easy answer, but simple. If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right, 
We cannot buy our security, our freedom from the threat of the bomb by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters. Alexander Hamilton said, a nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement, and this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement, and it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better read than dead, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. And this, this is the meaning in the phrase of Barry Goldwater, peace through strength. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You cannot preserve freedom from a position of weakness. President Theodore Roosevelt liked to say, speak softly and carry a big stick. In the first Iron Man movie, Tony Stark said, my old man had a philosophy. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. I like that, but I suggest an addendum. Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy and choosing not to use it. It's only peace if those who want violence are deterred and those powerful enough not to be deterred demonstrate self-restraint. Any way you slice it, you can only preserve freedom from a position of strength. Do you know why President Trump supporters love him despite his gravy stains? 
It's because he stands firm and confident and tells the liars and criminals in politics that they're wrong. Then he goes and does his job, improving the economy, successfully brokering peace in the Middle East, and working to cut off our would-be oligarchs at the pass. Like Reagan, Trump didn't get in to be a politician. He got in to make a difference. He stands in the breach against the grifters and the wannabe tyrants. We must stand with that same confidence. The confidence that Reagan showed against the Soviets. The confidence that Patton showed against the Germans. The confidence that Spencer Stone, Alex Garlados, and Anthony Sadler showed on an afternoon train to Paris. Do what is right. Let the consequence follow. This is the confidence of a righteous cause. These men did not apologize for their firmness. The dichotomy between Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill could not be more stark. The weakness of the former allowed the Axis to flourish. The strength and determined resolve of the latter helped preserve England and liberate Europe. We must be bold. We must be firm. We must be confident. And we must not apologize for our values. This nation, under God, was established to protect life, liberty, and the right to live life on our terms. God established this nation as a beacon of light and hope in the world. If we keep his commandments, we will prosper. No force, not of men or armies, criminals or corrupt politicians, can stand against his power. He wants nothing for us, but that we have a place where we can learn and progress, where we can become more than we are now, and learn, here, what we could not in the perfection of heaven. But he will not force himself on us. That is the essence of faith. We must choose to follow him. As Glenn Beck often says, God is not on our side. We must be on His. If you listen to that sense that impresses itself on your soul, that feeling that you know is right, even if you can't explain why, God will guide you. The more you follow those impressions, the clearer they will become, and the easier they will be to understand. We stand at a crossroads. God calls us one way. Disaster calls the other. It is indeed a time for choosing. All right, I'm going to call it there. As usual, you can find me on Twitter and Parler, that's P-A-R-L-E-R dot com, at Into the Fray, and at www.intothefraypodcast.com. If you find value in what I'm doing, please share it. I have a very small reach, and only you can change that. If you like the idea of adding a weekly Thursday night show, leave a comment. I've been toying with the idea of inviting two or three people on the show to discuss current events and relevant topics, and maybe even take questions and comments from Twitter and Parler. So let me know what you think. Till next week, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid. Mm-hmm.